and let's go to Ecclesiastes 7. And uh, can, I, can I confess my fault for a second? I, uh, I got to the office. Now, I've read the book of Ecclesiastes more than a dozen times, and I've read it uh, in its entirety as we embarked upon the, uh, the study and the, the series. Uh, but I don't have a photographic memory. Uh, I can't even remember my kids' names or ages most of the time. And so I didn't remember what chapter 7 had. And I came to the office this, uh, this week, and I was like, all right, Time to jump in. And he kind of, I kind of went into the chapter seven like this, like, all right, let's see what he's got for us. And I will say, pleasantly surprised. Um, chapter seven. Now, again, this isn't because it's bad. It's because it's heavy. It's because it's difficult to look at the reality of, of the vanity of life and uh, uh, just the heaviness and the sickness of his soul. And tonight, we're in for a treat. It's one of those few chapters that Solomon, even in his backslidden state, comes up for air. And uh, Solomon sounds more like his Proverbs self than kind of the, somebody said it last week. I don't know who it was, but you can blame them. I didn't say it. They said he sounds like Eeyore. And uh, sometimes he does. He's, he sounds pretty heartbroken about the realities of of oppression and discouragement and unrighteousness. And, and it's all very, very true, and, but it's also a very sick place to stay. And he's actually going to come away from that tonight. He's actually going to tell us to stop paying attention to some of those things because it's bad for your soul. And so um, this chapter, you're going to see uh, the Spirit of God kind of shining through um, uh, him a bit more than we would normally. And uh, you're going to find that he still holds to what he knows to be true, even though he's not necessarily obeying it. Um, it, it's a unique per, uh, perspective. Imagine with me a, a backslider, right? Well, let's just pick ourselves. Okay, let's say, God forbid, in 10 years from now, we find ourselves outside of church. And uh, some of you have, have gone away from the Lord um, at different times in your life. And you could probably testify to this truth better than the kind of uh, proverbial story I'm about to make up. But imagine if you backslid, you're away from God in 10 years from now, and someone came to you and said, hey, what's the best way to live? If you were honest, you would say, hey, living for the Lord is the best way to live. What I'm doing right now doesn't satisfy me. And we've had a lot of that. But tonight we get a lot of Solomon kind of still saying, hey, this is true. It is better to do these things. It is better to walk in this way. Um, and there's signs of life, if you will, signs of spiritual life still in this man. Uh, even though much of what we have waded through savors greatly of decay and vexation of spirit, um, there, are, there, uh, there are moments like chapter number seven that show you that he is indeed a man of faith. Um, who at very least used to understand God and can speak in that perspective. Again, the Spirit of God speaking through him. But he's going it, to, it's almost like if, if I had to picture it, he's sitting at the table and he's not observing all the injustices in this particular chapter. It's as though he is observing what life used to be like for him, uh, the, the benefits of walking in the Spirit and so forth. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Some of the truths he give us, gives us are hard. Um, it's probably, let me say it this way, if I had to pick the most useful chapter of the book, I would pick chapter seven. Um, chapter seven has some really, really good truths, but they are, they are choke a camel huge. Uh, they are hard to swallow. They are things we, like I said last week, we can't disagree with his observations. He's hundred percent right. Um, in this particular one, I wish it weren't true, but it is true. And the sooner that I, I accept it, the better off I am. And so it's really, really good advice. It's really, really wise, uh, or really, really solid wisdom but it's super, it, it's hard, it's heavy. You'll see it, but it, it, it's, it's light in, 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 in a uh, particular degree. I was reading one commentary on this uh, particular chapter and the author said this, I'll just read it for you. He says, the wise man Solomon, having exposed the many vanities to which men are subject in this life and showed that there is no real happiness in all outward enjoyments under the sun, 
proceeds in this chapter to observe what are the remedies against them. And so that's kind of the, the stage is set for what we're about to enter in. He spent a lot of time telling us how, how difficult life is. And for this particular chapter, we're going to see him kind of give some remedies. I said it last week this way. Everything Solomon is saying is 100% true, right? Life is empty and life is vain and life, there is vexation of spirit and there is oppression that can't be straightened out. And you can't hold on to the blessings even if you, you know, you wanted to. And all that's 100% true. But in many cases, it's also avoidable. You don't have to live with that kind of sickness of soul and depression of spirit. But tonight, he's actually going to give us some of those remedies for the sickness of soul uh, that he spent the last few chapters telling us about. So let's dive in. And I really think it'll be a blessing to you. Though again, get ready. It's going to hit us in the face real quick with some really good heart-changing truth that's just not super convenient, right? Look at verse number one. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of, of, of death than the day of one's birth. Now, there's, there's two big statements there, and actually the last one introduces this heavier thought. But that first one, look at what it says. Uh, uh, chapter seven, verse number one, it says, a good name is better than precious ointment. You know who that sounds like? Solomon. Right? Solomon wrote Proverbs 22.1. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. And so when Solomon wrote that particular book, uh, he was right with the Lord. He had the joy of the Lord. He had that peace and so forth, that fellowship with God. Now he's away from God. And again, like I said, it's almost like he's reminiscent over the good old days, right? What life used to be like. And he, he comes out with this statement that is, is so incredibly akin to what he wrote in the book of Proverbs. And Solomon has known this truth. Think about it for much of his kingship, right? The Proverbs 22 is suggested to have been written early on in the monarchy of David. And he once had the testimony of being a wise man with a good name where other royals would travel to come and just see him. They just wanted to see what he was doing because he was so majestic and powerful. But now this man sitting at the table with us has ascribed himself to be the old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. And so there's something we need to address here, just a bit of application. There is a diff there's no benefit for knowing what is good for your own soul. There is a benefit to doing what is good for your own soul. So here's this man with a terrible testimony, no admonish, no, nobody can admonish him, uh, right? And he talks about that two, that threefold cord and two lie together, there's heat. He's got nobody to do that for him. And he's sitting here and he says, yeah, but man, to have a good testimony, that's the way to do it. Solomon doesn't currently have a good testimony. He built the altar to Molech, right? He's got a thousand wives. Um, and so this is important for us to remember. There's no benefit to your own soul for knowing truth you don't live out. Um, there's no, think about it this way. There's no exam in heaven for Bible knowledge that you didn't obey, right? It's not like, well, I didn't live what I knew, but I knew it. So like, what's the consolation prize? Nothing. There's no consolation prize for knowing what's right. There is a reward for doing what's right. In fact, Romans chapter two, verse 13 says this. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. James says, right, be doers of the law and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So here you've got a guy, and for the rest of the chapter, he's going to give us some really solid pointers on living. He himself is not living, for the most part, all right? So let's look at the second part of verse number one. It kind of craps, cracks open this uncomfortable reality that we're going to walk through for verse two, three, and four. Look at verse number one for the rest of it. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and it's better the day, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Now, again, that might just sound like, uh, you know, Eeyore, right? That might just sound like Solomon's like, you know, it's better to die than to be born. Um, <clears throat> he has said things like that, but that's not what he's talking about. Um, he's actually introducing to us the importance 
of sorrow and gravity in the life of God's people. Now, that's what I mean by this is a truth we will all agree with. None of us want it. Solomon is about to tell us that it is better for you to struggle than to walk through life unscathed. Again, (laughs) I don't want that, but I have to admit it's true. Um, And so we're going to walk into this in just a second. Um, so again, he's not, he's not speaking out of frustration. He's not saying, it's better to be dead than to be born. No, not this time. He is saying that the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. And again, what he's telling us is that your birthday doesn't carry the gravity that your death day does. So, so think with me. The day of your birth is a time of celebration, but the day of your death is a day of, of legacy and remembrance. So let me put it in a single thought. Uh, the, uh, the gravity has greater value than levity, okay? The day of your death has gravity to it. The day of your birth is a day of celebration and levity. And he says that gravity has more value than levity. And he'll say it in a couple ways. He'll talk about sorrow. He'll talk about the house of mourning. He'll talk about the house of feasting and partying and so forth. And he's telling us in the next couple of verses that gravity has greater value than levity. So celebration, levity, laughter, a good time are fine. There's nothing wrong with enjoyment, but that's all that it is. It's just enjoyment. But gravity, your testimony, your legacy, that has long-lasting impact and value. Uh, again, I, I'm, I'm trying to get you to agree with the terms before you read them, because what he's going to teach us is something that we, we have a hard time swallowing. Look at verse number two. Let's read the terms. He says, it is better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Let me put it in real practical terms to us. It's better to go to a funeral than a party. (laughs) How many of you would rather go to a party? My hand is up. (laughs) Some of you weird sadistic people don't want to vote. No, I'm just kidding. My flesh is like, nope, I don't want to do that. Don't like funerals. They're heavy. They're hard. I don't want to go to a place where there's mourning and grief and heartache and, and, and you know, despair. That's a hard place to be. But Solomon is going to tell us there's a reason that gravity has more value than levity. Um, keep reading what he says. It is better to go into the house of mourning than go into the house of feasting, for that is the end of all, man, all men. He says, go to a funeral and you'll see where your life will ultimately end up. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's precisely why I don't want to go to a funeral. I don't want to think about the end of life, right? Now, I, I, I'm, I think I'm a little bit different, obviously, as part of my, my life and so forth. And so funerals are, are a good time. I, I can see them in that because people start paying attention, right? When, when someone gets a terminal illness, they start thinking about things they wouldn't have otherwise thought. Funerals are a huge blessing because they're a great opportunity for people to pay attention to things they didn't otherwise pay attention to. That's exactly what Solomon's saying. I've never gone to a birthday party and rethought my life decisions, but I have been to a funeral and rethought life decisions. Yeah, I've never been to a baby shower, you know, a day of somebody's birth and been like, you know what? I'm not living for Jesus like I should. But I have gone to funerals where someone died, a wise man with a great testimony and thought, I want to have a legacy like that. I've also gone to the funeral of, of fools and thought, man, they didn't have to die this way. They died under judgment. Uh, even recently, there was a situation where someone died a fool and under the hand of God's judgment. And it's, it's such a grievous thing, and it causes me introspection and self-examination. Now, again, that's not a comfortable thing. Our flesh doesn't like this, but we all agree in the spirit that it's absolutely true. So he said, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. 
I love that phrase, lay it to his heart. It's a, it's a unique phrase, and it means this. The Hebrew defines that phrase as placing something into, okay? It will place into the heart of man that this is my end. I will die someday. So all the cars and all the stuff and all the, the frills and all the party, that's not the end of man. It's not, it's not Hollywood or it's not the walk of fame or the stars on the ground. It's none of those things. All men, rich, poor, you know, it doesn't matter what skin color you are, where you're born, we'll all die someday and death places it into, like into a vessel, that reality. It causes us to pay attention. Listen, when we go to a funeral, that places that value and that maturity and that observation. When we go to a party, what do we get? We get fed, maybe. We have fun. And that's fine. But what is better? Real life maturity and observation or that was awesome. I won't pin the tail on the donkey. All right. So let's keep reading. He, he doubles down on this. Again, it's not an easy thing to see. But he says in verse number three, sorrow is better than laughter. I agree, but I don't necessarily like that. I wish laughter was better than sorrow. I do. I enjoy to laugh. I do. I, I, my wife has told me, and it is so true. I, I cope because my upbringing, if you knew my family, you know, this is absolutely true. I cope with stressful situations with humor. And a lot of times that's not great. Okay. I'll just tell you that right now. Um, and so I, I, I would rather laugh than cry. Right. You with me on that? But Solomon's not wrong. So he says, sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. That is profound, and science is proving that every single day to be true. That grief and sadness actually play a powerful role in your heart being made better. This is so incredibly true. Um, Listen, grief is such a powerful healing mechanism and sadness is such a powerful healing mechanism that God has actually built into us. It's part of the, the purging process of your heart and season of your heart. It allows you to sit face to face with reality instead of just like, I'm gonna go distract myself with something funny. No, 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 that sadness and that grief or, or, or that, that heaviness, you're going to the house of mourning, right? You're going to that funeral. Those things are good for the soul because it doesn't sugarcoat. It doesn't pretend. It stares face to face with the reality. You may never see that person this side of heaven. It stares face to face with some of those harder things and it calibrates and recalibrates our heart. It teaches us to number our days. It teaches us to put more value on the things that actually matter, right? No dad ever made a decision at a little girl's birthday party that he was gonna be a better dad, but dad Dads have made decisions at funerals of small children that they're going to take every day that God gave them with their kid uh, seriously. That that sadness is a mechanism whereby uh, your heart can be made better. Sadness is one of the purest forms of I love you that that if you lose a loved one, that sadness is one of, and I've tried to share this in grief counseling, sadness, that, that, that those tears is one of the purest forms that we have left to say I love you. We can't say I love you to them. You'll never, you won't see them this side of heaven. But in that grief, in that life is not the same without you. Um, it, it's, it's a pure form of love. Uh, and even scientific data so much backs up the claims of these verses. Uh, these verses that sadness improves the, the heart. It improves your, your emotions. It, it helps you process some of the harder things of life. Um, and that's why it's better for you than, than celebrating, than, than feasting. Look at verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning by choice. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or levity or joy. So the greatest lesson that I've learned in my life, or the greatest lessons, I should say, that I have ever learned in my life, the, the, the seasons I have grown the most as a man and as a husband, as a pastor, the, the seasons that I search, the inner man of my soul, were in seasons of heaviness. They were in the seasons of sorrow. 
Uh, those were the places I grew the most. Not the happy times, not the, not the theme park days. Uh, I think about uh, just in my own marriage, right? And if you'll just bear with me for a second, I want to use this illustration. In my own marriage, God has given my wife and I, I, I just, I think one of the greatest marriages that I know, and I'm not trying to brag, I'm just grateful. I, I, I wouldn't trade my marriage for any other human being. We have an unbelievable bond. She gets me, puts up with me. I understand her. We are deeply connected and committed in that. But that didn't happen at Disneyland. Okay? And I think you know where I'm going. That happened in hospital rooms where we held each other and didn't know what tomorrow would have, right? That, that's where trust is formed, in mourning, in patience, in waiting, in weeping. And listen, every one of those moments were moments I was afraid, this is going to wreck my marriage. This is so difficult. We don't know where we go from here. And in every single one of those, it felt like it would break what we had. But the fact of the matter is, by sorrow, our hearts were made stronger. And every one of you who've walked through similar and many of you worse situations than God has afforded our family, you know that to be true if you survived them, if you walked through them correctly. Because those are the hardest seasons of life, the ones that are deep in the valley, and it's not the house of mirth, and it's not the house of feasting. It's the house of mourning and sorrow, and there you are made stronger. I have a wife who loves Jesus because he has patiently and at times painfully taught her to trust him. And I... In those moments, I was speaking with Brother Escobar today. In those moments, I wish I could have rescued her. Like, oh, let me take this away from you. And Jesus is like, hold on, kid. I'm working in her. And he's grown her and he's grown me through those same situations. Because he, he, he loved her and he loved me and he walked with us through those situations. That, that's why uh, Solomon is telling us the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. When we just run from our problems to go have fun and go party it away and go distract ourselves, we're missing the opportunity to grow in those moments. These are moments that happen in the house of mourning, not in the house of feasting and laughter. And to a fool, the greatest days of his life. Were the funnest days of his life, the parties, the awards, the high moments, the theme parks. But to the wise man, you learn to value house of mourning. That in those seasons of suffering, God is doing something you will never learn in the house of feasting. And so it is better. It is a blessing. And that's a heavy truth. And he stops that, that, that line of thinking. He's going to move to something else. But I do want to encourage you before we go, apply that to your own heart and life, right? That in those seasons that you wish you could change and that I wish I could change and God may by his grace change those circumstances, but not before we learn, not before he does the work he's trying to do. Because on the back end of it, the trial of your faith is more precious than of gold, which perish it because that's gone. But man, the marriage he's building and the person he's building and the work he's doing in your children's life, he's doing something more precious than gold. And a wise man will take heart and say, this is where I need to be, not over here party in a way and distracting myself from its reality. So let's keep reading in verse number five. He said, it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. So it's, it's better to be told that you're wrong by a wise man than to be soothed by the comforting melodies of foolish people. And that too, it's similar because that's very contrary to our flesh, right? Uh, I'd rather listen to a beautiful song that makes me feel real good than, you know, a wise brother or sister come to me and say, hey, pastor, I think that you treated that person wrong. Like, I would, <laughs> can we go back to the song? I don't, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of that. But the fact of the matter is, it is better to hear the rebuke of a wise man than for the man to hear the song of fools. Let's look at verse number six. He says, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools or, or of the fool. This also is a vanity. So, so think about this. This is all still kind of connected. He's saying, hey, fools, they laugh, they party, they have fun. Their laughter and their levity and their house of mirth and feasting. It's just empty, fleeting, crackling noise that for a little while sounds enticing. Oh, fire seems warm, but it's gone. It burns away. There's nothing left. 
The thorns are destroyed and burned and they're remembered no more. But the lessons we learned in hardship, the lessons we learned in the house of mourning, those have great value. This has temporary warmth. It sounds pretty. It crackles and it's gone. But in the house of mourning, you learn lessons you will never forget and will fundamentally change the way you walk as a person, the way you love as a husband or a wife. Those are, those are uh, powerful things. Now, don't forget this because Solomon is going to move on from that powerful truth to, to verse number seven. Now, verse number seven, I want to encourage our, our, uh, our, our adults. For those of you who are a little bit older, this passage is specifically written to you, so I'm not picking on you. Solomon is. Um, so look at verse number seven. He says, Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. And that's talking about bribery. So this verse is describing how I feel like nearly every Bible-believing Christian looks at the condition of our society. Surely oppression makes a wise man mad, and the gift, and a gift destroyeth the heart. When you look out, especially you older people, he's going to, again, he's going to mention it in a second, so hold on to that thought. But when you look out at the condition of our, our country and our society, and you see bribery, perverting judgment, and special interests, corrupting policy, and oppression and subjugation becoming the normative kind of operating procedure, any wise man looks at that, and it will drive him mad. Yeah. It will drive him crazy. And in a second, Solomon's going to say what I'm about to say. So I'll, I'll beat him to it. Because when I look at politics and policy and people and all that's going on in politics, I go crazy. So you know what I don't do a lot? Look at it. I don't. And, and you can be like, well, it's because you're a kid. That's fine. Solomon was wiser and older than probably anybody in the room. And he's actually going to say the exact same thing. So hold on to that. Let's look at verse number eight. He says, better is the end of the thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. He says, hey, 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 hey. I know a wise man looks at the oppression and the bribery and the, the corruptness. And man, mm, I want to I act. I want to storm the capital. I want to. And he says, well, hold on. Better is the patient in spirit. Think about the end. The, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Notice the remedy, verse number nine. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. So again, here's Solomon, an aged man. He's already mentioned that he sees oppression in his kingdom. He already mentioned here that he looks around and man, gifts bribery or compromising judgment. And man, it's just not the way that it used to be. And he says, it'll drive you crazy, but hey, think about the end. It's better than the beginning and be not hasty in your spirit to be angry for anger resteth in the bosom of the fools. And I love how logical this next passage gets. Look at verse number 10. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Did you catch that? He said, the worst thing you can do is look out, get mad, and say, just wish it was like the old days. That's what he said. Say not thou. What is the cause that the former days were better than these? And notice what Solomon says about it. For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. That kind of complaint. That kind of, but it should be this way. I would agree. It should be. But Solomon says that's not a wise inquiry. That's, you're not asking the right questions. You're looking at it wrong simply because you can't make it go back to what it used to be or the way that you desire it to be. You're just going to go crazy concerning yourself with all the oppression and injustice. And again, he's not saying just turn a blind eye to it. But the fact of the matter is it's important that you and I operate in wisdom knowing that 
this is going to drive ourselves nuts. It was driving Solomon nuts. It's driving some of us nuts too. But notice the author's going to lean heavy on the idea of wisdom. Look at uh, verse number 11. It says, wisdom is good with an inheritance. So I'm going to flip that around. Inheritance is good with wisdom. Wisdom goes along with inheritance. And there's a reason for that. It says, and by it, there is profit to them that see the sun. Hey, if you have an inheritance and God, you know, provides your parents, provide an inheritance, you have some money. Hey, um, you know what really goes along with, with money? Wisdom, right? It'll profit you if you are a wise man who inherits goods, that you're a good steward of them. And he's going to lean even further into this. Look at verse 12. He says, for wisdom is a defense. Okay, so it's like a wall. And money is a defense. But the excellency of knowledge is, so the best thing you can learn, though, is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. So money can't give life. Wisdom can give life. Money can protect, and that's true, right? You know, if you've got an unexpected health problem, you should storehouse, you should, money's a defense. It's like a wall. But wisdom is also a wall. But here's the thing. What good is a wall if you're dead inside? Think about it. What good, let's say there was a whole city full of dead people and you built a wall around it. For what? You just have money as a defense. No, no, no. Money is a defense, yes, but wisdom is a defense. And wisdom brings life. You're still alive. You have that inheritance and you have wisdom. Oh, man, now you're firing on all cylinders. So to have things is not bad. To have inheritance is not bad. To have money as a defense is not bad, but you ought to have wisdom with it too. It's a principal thing. Verse number 13, consider the work of God. For who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? Now that harkens back to chapter 1, verse 15. I'll read it for you. It says, that which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. So again, if God makes something straight, you can't make it crooked. And if God makes something crooked, you can't make it straight. So God is sovereign, and there are some things that he has built into life that cannot change even if we want to. Where's he going with this? The next verse. This is kind of the tie back to the the whole first part of the chapter. Look at verse number 14. In the day of prosperity, hey, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider learn. Hey, if you're in the house of feasting, fine. Enjoy it, right? Enjoy the fruit of your labor. That's fine. I'm not opposed to those. Hey, but if you're in the season of of mourning or the house of mourning, go ahead and consider. Notice the thing that God makes that man can't change. God also hath set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after them. Okay. Did Did you catch what he said? Let me show you. Let me show you with my hands. He said, hey, yeah, if you're in the house of joy, fine, enjoy it. If you're in the house of mourning, go ahead and consider. And God put both of these next to each other and no man can avoid that. If God makes that crooked, if he makes it straight, you can't change it. Ultimately, it's that illustration that we've used already about the train tracks. We want to ride the track of levity all the way to the end. We want to ride the house of laughter and the time of hugging and the time of embracing. We want want all good times. But there's two seasons, and God set them both over against each other so that life can go forward. And there's nothing else a man can do. There's nothing he's going to discover other than that. Remember what he said, I think it was last chapter, uh, that man already tried this and didn't win. Man tried to make it his own way, and he couldn't win. It's a powerful thought that God has set these things over against each other. There's nothing else we can do. So submit and react the right way with joy in the times of blessings and with wisdom and learning in the times of, of hardship. Now, the next four verses point to a logical and painful observation about living righteously and its correlation with life and prosperity. So this one is a little bit 
Um, I don't want to say abstract. I don't want to discourage you and make you think it's hard, but I do want you to pay attention because you could lose where he's going. Um, but before we get there, so let me say it again. He's going to teach us about right living, about religious living, about living pure, and its relationship with protection, blessings, prosperity, you know, safety, okay? And oftentimes in our mind, we are like Job's friends who correlate the two. Hey, if I live right, that means I'm only going to ever have good things happen to me. Now, we might not say the word only, but we would assume that it's fair, right? And and there's biblical precedent for that, right? If you sow, you reap. Um, But think about Job's friends. Job's friends show up, and Job has suffered the the bereavement of every good thing he had, right, except his wife. And they just assume, they just assume, okay, well, if you're under the, if all these awful things happen, it must be because you've done wrong. Because if you had done right, none of these bad things would ever happen to you, right? And oftentimes, even as Christians, we kind, of, we kind of ride that train too, right? We think, well, why would bad things happen to good people? Oh, man. Uh, l- l- listen, obedience to God and faithfulness to his word does not spare someone from the curse while under the sun. Amen. It's the fact of life. And Solomon is going to say it in probably the heaviest way he could. Look at verse 15. It's a hard verse, and it's one of the hardest observations I've ever made as a human. And I'm right there with Solomon on this. He says, all things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just just man that perisheth in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. Uh, (laughs) I have faced that question as a pastor so many times. Lord, this brother, this sister... And Lord, they loved you. And the curse is touching their life in heavy and permanent ways. And you got this guy over here who's living so wickedly, and it seems like he's prospering. And please, again, compare this with the Proverbs that, or the, the Psalms that says, then I went into the house of the, the sanctuary of the Lord, and I understood their end. And, and again, this is so important, but you can't escape what he says. All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man. He dies in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man, and somehow his life is prolonged in his wickedness. And the next verse is a continuation of this thought. And it might seem hard to wrap our heads and our hearts around, but listen. He says, be not righteous over much, neither make thyself over wise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? So this is what I meant by it can be a little obscure. It can be a little bit hard to follow. And I, I tried my, I, I worked through this passage myself, read a bunch of commentaries, tried to work through the best possible interpretation that I, that I found and that I, I prayed through and so forth. So, so just listen to what he said. We just saw in verse 15 about the, the good man, he's dying. Um, and that, I actually, I'm going to take that back because there's no wise man that does good. It's like two verses from now. But there's a just, there's a righteous man and he dies. And there's a wicked man and he lives. And then in verse number 16, he presents this question. He says, why shouldest thou destroy thyself? And here's, here's, here's what I, I think that it means. One might think, well, if I, if I deny myself and if I suffer and I'm more religious and I'm more righteous and I become the wisest overall, God will be indebted to me to owe me safety. Okay, you see how we can think that way? the the term for it is asceticism. Asceticism is about self-denial. Denial of any pleasure or joy. It's what Mother Teresa became famous for. And Mother Teresa is not any Mother Teresa. Uh, You read about the life of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa taught self-flagellation, where you would beat yourself and cut yourself and hurt yourself because you were denying yourself any pleasure or comfort. She would force the nuns to stand uh, until they dropped because they were learning suffering so they could be more holy so that God would owe them a debt. 
so that they could be safe in heaven or in this life. And it's my observation, that's what Solomon is warning against. Hey, be not righteous over much, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? You're never going to indebt God to you. Look at verse 17. Be not over much wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? So, hey, we might, we, we might think, well, okay, fine. I can't live over, I can't be the most righteous person ever and destroy myself and then God owes me a debt and I'm safe. That doesn't work, so fine. The opposite of that must be true. I can live however I want and the curse can't come. Here's a, a, a reality. You may not be able to indebt God to you for righteous living and extend your life, but you can bring the curses faster upon you. You don't escape the curse by living a righteous life in terms of cancer coming or things of that nature. You don't escape that. But if you think, well, fine, since I can't escape it, I also can't come under judgment. Yeah, you can. You sure can. And that's what he says here. Be, be not over much wicked, the opposite side. Neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? Again, you can't stop the curse by your actions, but you can advance the curse by your actions. And I, I, I've unfortunately seen that many times as a pastor and as a Christian where somebody decides to run from God or rebel against God. And there's some really pungent examples that I can't give in, in, in a public setting where, man, some, some people just chose to do wrong and I've watched God take their lives. Some good friends I grew up with, some people that, some, that, 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 that I've known over the years, you can advance your death. Living righteously may not prolong your life. There's certain promises in Proverbs that, that, that equate to that, but this is what Solomon has to teach us. Verse number 18, he says, it is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. So pay attention and grasp this reality. Yea, also from this withdraw not thy hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. I love it. Solomon gives us some really great spiritual advice. He says, hey, you can't indebt God to yourself. You can be over the righteous and over the wise and destroy your own self so that God is indebted to you. That doesn't work. You can come over here and try to, you know, uh, become foolish and God will judge you. He says, and while the fact of the matter is, I have seen wicked people live longer than righteous people, the righteous man comes out in the end. What he said here. He says, yea, also withdraw not thy, thy foot, for, uh, withdraw not thine hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. At the finish line, this guy's life has great value. And he may have died in his righteousness younger than that guy died. But in the end, God brings forth all of those people who died in righteousness. Verse number 19. Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than 10 mighty men which are in the city. So be wise. Walk after wisdom. Walk after righteousness. It'll make you a strong man. Verse number 20. For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. That's a good verse. That sounds very New Testamenty, doesn't it? Um, there are people who teach. Uh, I was even recently having a conversation with um, somebody. They were saying, "Yeah, my sister believes she has attained sinless perfection." She's not a member of our church, and uh, I thought, "How in the world could you ever believe that with a verse like that?" There, for there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. The best of men are men at best. You're gonna, you, you, you need to have a balance. You ought to be wise. It'll make you wise like a man in a city. You ought not be foolish. You can advance the days of your death. The wise man comes out in the end. The fact of the matter is there's no good people though. We're all sinners. Verse number 12, 21. Also take no heed. This is a unique thought. This one seems, at least in my understanding of it, just seems to be a, a whole new thought, a disconnected thought, uh, kind of like he does in Proverbs. So kind of move from thought to thought. Verse 21. Uh, also take no heed unto all words that are spoken. Now, why would we not listen to every word that's spoken? 
Um, we, we were joking about it in the, the house the other day. Um, I'm not advocating for this particular movie, but there's a Disney movie where there's a girl who can hear everything. Could you imagine how like anxiety inducing that would be? If you could hear everything, like I can hear him breathing in the, the sound booth and I can hear, you know, Brother Escobar playing with his keys in his pocket. That would drive me crazy. Okay, that's not what he's advocating for. But look what he, here's the reason. Uh, also take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. So uh, let's, let's interpret that, the first part of the verse, by the end of the verse. He says, there's going to be some things you hear that are going to be negative about you. They're going to be criticism. They're going to be an attack. They're going to be a curse from those who you love. And they're your servant. They're in your house. And he says, listen, uh, don't take heed to everything everyone says. Some good advice. <laughs> There's some things, right? And I even think it, it has a little bit of a bend to this. Sometimes it's better not to know, right? We'll investigate like, oh, I saw you. What's going on? Sometimes it's better just to be like, mm, okay. I'm not going to investigate every single thing. Um, and, and probably some of us are like that. I know that I tend to be that way. And he said, uh, also take no heed unto all the words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. Now, verse number 22, look at the next verse. For oftentimes, so here's why you should just, let it go. For oftentimes also thine own heart knoweth that thou thyself likewise hath cursed others. <laughs> That's a good verse. He says, hey, don't be trying to be like, I heard Brother Hunter breathe and I bet it was about me. I'm going to investigate. You ought to take it to heart that, man, I probably, I probably said some things too. And I would want grace and I, I, I didn't mean it. And it was, it was pretty empty and okay. Probably what he was saying, if it was about me, it's probably empty too, and he may not have meant it either. That's the best understanding I can grab out of those verses. It's, it's good advice. Verse number 23. All this have I proved by wisdom. He says, I'm telling you this because I've, I've proven it to be true. I've walked through life. I've lived a long time, and I also have this God-ordained wisdom in me. So he says, all this have I proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. It's, it's such a unique idea. He says, even in all the wisdom I possessed, in all the observations I could have, I could never get enough. There was always more to understand. There was always more wisdom, right? And I feel that way so often, right? I'm not 26 anymore when I came to pastor here. I'm 35. And so I feel like, man, I've grown a lot. But I still feel like no matter how much I grasp for wisdom, I'm still, there's still something more. There's still a, a better way to react or a better way to understand or a better way to uh, you know, interpret or look at the scripture. And that's kind of where Solomon, the wisest man, found there's no, there's no, there's no like graduation point in wisdom. There's no place where you become like, oh, last level. You know, like you heard about that kid who beat Tetris, right? First person ever to beat Tetris. Why didn't that happen like in your generation, man? Um, he did it. So there's no, yeah, his generation worked. <laughs> it's true. That's why they didn't beat Tetris. That's fair. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's, that's a good observation. Um, but Solomon is telling us there's, there's no like, you graduated. Like there's always more to have wisdom. That was good, man. I love that one. It's absolutely right. Verse number 24. He says, that which is, the, is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? And Solomon is at the very end of the spectrum where none of us will probably ever get to. God-given wisdom. And he's like, yeah, but there's, there's a deep end over there, right? And I feel like the deep end is, you know, I, I got so far to go for Solomon. And Solomon's saying he's still not in the deep end. And that should cause a great appreciation of the wisdom of God. That God is the end of wisdom. He's, he's, he is wisdom, right? He didn't beat the game. He is wisdom. Now, verse number 25 um, it says, I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom. 
and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even the foolishness and madness. He says, I certainly did try it all, but I still couldn't come to the end of all wisdom. Now look at verse number 26 and see what he did prove and did understand. Um, I'm just going to read the first part with you. It says, I find more bitter than death, the woman. Now, (laughs) hold on. Brother Josh asked me, he said, are you really going to read that? And I was like, yes, I'm going to read that. It's not, it doesn't say, it isn't what it sounds like, okay? Um, but let, let's, let's, let's keep reading for the sake of understanding. He says, I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and death and her, uh, her hands as bands. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken uh, of her. So, so what is he saying? Well, he said, the thing worse than death is the woman. But to understand what he means, you have to think, some of you guys are going to get in trouble. Um, <laughs> hey, it's Bible, Brother Hunter. No, no, it, it's not. It, it is, but it's, it's not where we think, okay? And I'm, yes, I am prolonging it on purpose. Um, to, to, to understand what he means, think about who's talking, okay? This is crucial. This is one of those times where we point out, like, knowing the who, what, where, why, when is super crucial. Because some chauvinist can take this and be like, see, women, you're terrible. No, no, no. Think about who's talking. This is the man who has given himself over to gratification in an intimate way. And I'm being careful. We got kids in here still tonight. He has chased women. He has collected women. He has indulged and hoarded to himself every possible pleasure he could. And now, after possessing the thing that lost men would think, oh man, if I could have a thousand wives, there's only 365 days in a year. I'm not going to do the math. If I could get to that, that would be it. And now you have the man who possesses that, the thing that lost people would think is the greatest thing on earth, unrestrained gratification with as many varied women as possible. And he says, death is less bitter. The word bitter means this, having a pungent and unbearable quality. Someone tried to talk me into eating grapefruit. I'm cool off that. As bitter as grapefruit is, death is worse. You know, and I want to sidebar, but I don't want to get off track. It drives me nuts when lost people celebrate death. You know, the skulls and the... Every time I see that, I think this. And I always want to ask them, when you, if you ever bury your child, I want to see you celebrate death. There it is. Oh, death! Nobody loves death. Nobody. Man pretends they do because it is their final foe who they will submit to because all men come under death but they try to celebrate it and remove the fangs of it and remove the, the sting of death. No one actually celebrates death. They can, act, they can act tough. They can act super hard. But the fact of the matter is nobody celebrates death. It's bitter. And Solomon says what is worse is the bondage created by making women your God. Okay? And that's why he says, I find more bitter than death, the woman, whose heart is snares and nets. Chasing her brings you into bondage. And her hands as bands, the works of her hands, they trap you. Again, this is the man who had wives turn away his heart from God. His wives caused him to err and to worship false gods and build temples for child sacrifice. And notice what he continues to say in verse 26. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. He says, run. Run, says the man with a thousand wives. Now, keep that word 
thousand in your mind. It's really important to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And in two verses from now, he's going to say that word again. Look at verse 27. Behold, this I found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account. So here's the man of a thousand wives. He counts one by one. And he says, you know what I find more bitter than death? The woman. And then notice his observation. And this one's actually worse than verse 26, if you're a chauvinist man. He says in 28, which yet my soul seeketh. So I, I, I set out to find it, counting one by one to find out the account, which my soul seeketh, but I found not. One man among a thousand have I found. That's good, that's just, that's right. But a woman among all those have I not found. The man who has a thousand wives said, I counted one by one. If I counted one by one through men, I might find a virtuous person. But if I counted one by one through a thousand, I never found one woman. What do you think he's talking about? The man has wives and concubines that number to this exact number. And listen, he has heaped to himself pagan women. And now he looks around and he's like, why aren't any of them virtuous? <laughs> you make your own bed, you sleep in it. Which is weird because I, never mind. I'm not going to tell you if I do or don't make my bed, but I never make my bed and then get into it, right? That's a little weird. But he has chosen these women and then is surprised that none of them love the Lord, that none of them are righteous, none of them are virtuous. He can search through a thousand of them and still doesn't find any among them. Closing thought, verse 29, Lo, this only have I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions or other ways. This is so profound for a man whose soul is so sick. He is, in my mind, not not observing what life is like presently, but observing what life used to be like in that God made man righteously. He made Adam righteous, but man has sought many other ways to do it their own way, many other inventions, many other devious ways of living. And this puts us in this position that God created us pure but we have gone astray, every one of us like sheep. We've all gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own wicked way. And Solomon, thankfully, in this very uh, just deep breath of fresh air, teaches us some valuable, valuable things. So I hope we'll learn them and apply our hearts to, to wisdom and know that, man, sorrow of heart and the house of mourning, there's some benefits there you'll never get in the house of mirth. Let's pray.